the great upheavals which precede changes of civilization, such as the fall of the Roman Empire and the foundation of the Arabian Empire, seem at first sight determined more especially by political transformations, foreign invasion, or the overthrow of dynasties. But a more attentive study of these events shows that behind their apparent causes, the real cause is generally seen to be a profound modification in the ideas of the people. The true historical upheavals are not those which astonish us by their grandeur and violence. The only important changes whence the renewal of civilization results affect ideas, conceptions, and beliefs. The memorable events of history are the visible effects of the invisible changes of human thought. The reason these great events are so rare is that there is nothing so stable in a race as the inherited groundwork of its thoughts. The present epoch is one of these critical moments in which the thought of mankind is undergoing a process of transformation. Two fundamental factors are at the base of this transformation. The first is the destruction of those religions, political, and social beliefs in which all the elements of our civilization are rooted. The second is the creation of entirely new conditions of existence and thought as the result of modern scientific and industrial discoveries. The ideas of the past, although half destroyed, being still very powerful, and the ideas which are to replace them being still in process of formation, the modern age represents a period of transition and anarchy. It is not easy to say, as yet, what will one day be evolved from this necessarily somewhat chaotic period. What will be the fundamental ideas on which the societies that are to succeed our own will be built up? We do not at present know. Still, it is already clear that on whatever lines the societies of the future are organized, they will have to count with a new power, with the last surviving sovereign force of modern times, the power of crowds. Well, I'm not a crook. I burn everything I've got. A military industrial complex. We are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostage. It's been time to Hello, Yuletides, welcome back to the show. I'm Nick, and I have, joining me this evening, I have uh, Hans and Adam. How are you boys doing? I'm doing swell. I'm doing fantastic. Okay. Fantastic. I think Adam steps away. It's okay. It doesn't matter because the show moves on. Uh, we're joined, of course, by returning guest, friend of the program, Borzoi. I asked him to come on to discuss this topic because I thought it would be something... Borzoi has a very keen eye for understanding of mass phenomenon. He's, I always noticed that, so I thought it would be an appropriate guest to have to discuss this evening's topic. So, Borzoi, hello, how are you doing? Hello, and also I have an interest in the French Third Republic, and you've 
found someone I actually had never heard before or heard of before, which is, I guess that's on me considering the influence this, this gentleman has had, but I was, yes, I, I was ecstatic when you proposed this book to me and I looked into it. Also, I think you, you asked yeah, me to plug the stuff at the start of the show. Oh, sorry, we'll I think you asked me to. About. Yeah, speaking of that's books. Right, yeah, please plug things. Yeah, antelopehillpublishing.com, cultured grugs, it makes a good stocking stuffer. Don't know if you're going to get it in time, but it could be a late stocking stuffer. It's a book I wrote. Working on a couple other ones, but uh, dad life has kind of gotten in the way of a lot of that stuff right now. But uh, I don't think people want to hear about cultured grugs right now. So, but that's again, antelopehillpublishing.com. You'll find a lot of other uh, great books up there. Actually, I should talk well, to yeah, you about republishing there, some of this guy's works. Uh, yeah, go buy it. Go buy Borisoy's book. Um, this guy that he's referring to is uh, Gustave Le Bon. And we're going to be discussing his very influential and famous work, The Crowd, A Study of the Popular Mind. So we can give a little bit of background on this. I'm sure people are familiar with the book, at least I think some people are familiar with the book. It's a very famous book. I personally would highly recommend this book. I would say that if you were going to read only like three books about you know, for, if you want to understand the 20th century and beyond, and you were going to read only three books, this should be one of them. It's that good. I mean, it's a very clear book, and the the clarity of it is something that he probably will not be forgiven because that's that's one of the great sins is when you write something that makes sense and is clear, uh, they'll hold that against you forever, even when they are forced to credit you for it but uh borza do you want to give some background yeah so this author gustave lebon is actually kind of be- this book is very famous uh, with this the crowd the what was it called the the crowd the psychology of the popular mind uh or a study of the popular mind he was a very interesting figure he's he tends to be referred to as, as a conservative or or a reactionary and he might there's some aspects of that that might be true because of the age he was he was writing in and the things he had to say. But fundamentally, he was a very educated man who just had a dim or at least skeptical view of of democracy and, and the liberal system. Some of his more formative experiences were that he was the, he served in the French army during the Franco-Prussian War, which is what gave birth to the uh, to the French Third Republic. So for people who don't know their French history. Uh, by 1870, France was in the midst of its, uh, I think it's what they they call it, the Second Empire, and was led by Napoleon III, uh, which I believe who I believe was Napoleon's nephew. But the uh, the imperial project came to an end with the re- with the unification of Germany, and they crushed the French in a humiliating defeat in the Franco-Prussian War. Uh, they actually had captured his, the the emperor and. The government in France became non-existent. That's where you get the the Paris Commune as well, which Lebon was a witness to to the crushing of, which I, which helped formulate some of his uh, skeptical views on revolutionary and socialist movements. He later went on to be, to travel through Europe, Asia, North Africa in kind of an anthropological way. He's written a number of books. He, his training was in a in as a doctor, and uh, but it was his 1895 book on crowd psychology that 
was really his claim to fame. When you look at a lot of his stuff, actually has never been translated into English, which is a shame because some of it does look interesting. He's done psychology on on revolutions, psychology on socialism. He did a book on the interwar period because he died in 1931, but he was he was writing about what was going on post World War One in Europe, which. Uh, I've never seen much written about, so I'm kind of curious what's in all that. But that's kind of the background in all that. And this work shows the kind of the skepticism that was really beginning to develop in this era. It's called the fin de siècle, which is the end of the century. It's often associated with a lot of the uh, decadent and uh, decadent art movements. But you also have this rise in reactionary politics because of things like uh, the the General Boulanger uh, affair with uh, where he had the opportunity, kind of a, a French Trumpian, where he had the opportunity to really mess up the French Third Republic, uh, didn't seize the moment, fled to Belgium and killed himself. He had the Panama scandal. And then, of course, you end up having the, the Dreyfus affair. All this stuff's kind of going on at this time, and a lot of, except for the Dreyfus affair, which I think was a little bit later, but a couple of years later. But uh, this is the background in which uh, Lebon is writing this book. And you can see somebody who wants to take a dispassionate and scientific view of the crowd. And strip it of these of this of these liberal moralisms and, and idealisms about what the crowd is, how the crowd functions, and how one engages with the crowd. Does that kind of give you the uh, what you were looking for there, Nick? Yeah, that's perfect. Because I, the thing is, I think the book stands historical context is always useful, but the book stands very well on its own, and it really holds up as far as what we're facing for the future in the 21st century, but it explains so much of the 20th century as well. And we're going to be able to talk a lot about obvious uh, examples from recent history, as well as 20th century history. So it it's difficult to say where it's like. I would start by saying, as I, I started with, you should read this book. It's a fantastic book. And I think it's a lot more relevant in a, I guess you'd say maybe real polity kind of way, than the Machiavelli. I, I think it. I, I think that on the one hand, I mean, there's a lot in this book that is very old, a lot of ancient wisdom. Uh, there's a lot of things that you would find in Plato as well, uh, but it's also something that it incorporates fundamentally the race idea uh, at its very inception, as far as his the inception of his theories regarding crowd psychology, crowd formation, uh, and how that relates to political action. I think if you are, you know, a would-be revolutionary <laughs> or just somebody who wants to understand things, uh, read this book. It's not very long, and it's very to the point, and excellent book. Um, yeah, the, ra- the race aspect would you like is to very— for, There's a few yeah, things— the ra- the race aspect is very core to it. And when you read that, what's funny was reading what people, what uh, scholars and and political wonks who try to make comparisons to this book say about it, because they seem to focus a lot on, they probably didn't even read much past the introduction, where he does say things basically about how kind of like the effect crowds have in destroying societies. But again, this is a dispassionate kind of skeptical and scientific view he turns towards it. So, I mean, some societies just simply deserve to be destroyed. And he kind of takes that 
into consideration within this work. He, race is a huge component of it, and he they, does a lot to contrast what he calls the Latin races with uh, the Anglo-Saxons. He contrasts that quite a bit because for the French, that's going to be the, the biggest comparison. But he also does, he, it's not just about crowd. It's not coming from this reactionary standpoint of this, you know, like the, the people are, the people are just a stupid rabble. It's like, no, there's, there are particular aspects of crowds. There's different types of crowds. You can have criminal crowds. You can have heroic crowds. He says this in the work. And he also even speaks more highly of crowds compared to the more functionary, bureaucratic, janissary class type people. He spends a little bit of time. This work basically pairs well with the the Italian elite school. Was it, what do they call it? The, um, the Italian elite theory school, the one that was uh, that's Pareto, Mosca, Gitano. Yeah, Pareto and uh, yeah. So it okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it a takes a dim view. He basically takes so a dim Mike, view of those, of those functionaries. Of all he just takes a dim view of the re- of the, I, I the functionary class. From uh, the Dover Publications copy, and before even the preface, there's a uh, publisher's note that says. Some of the opinions presented in this book reflect attitudes that were common among some writers on social issues during the final years of the 19th century in Europe and the United States, but are no longer common. <laughs> so, yeah, you got the publisher disclaimer. The thing about race, uh, we could start here with the theory, is that We can put it this way. If you want to understand the quality and characteristics of a given people, just put a bunch of them in a crowd and it will come out. It's almost a sort of a Jungian understanding. And we can look, I'm sure some people are at least are familiar. If you're not, go go check it out. Uh, Carl Jung gave a lecture on uh, her and his mythological role among the German people and that that of course being that uh, he fulfilled the role of the true god of the German people that of Wotan right and the point being is that like the characteristics of a given people will come out in the crowd because in the crowd you have the sublimation of the individual personality and the actions and passions of the crowd are indicative of the deeper forces that move a given people that by their nature and nature is of course something determined by birth contrary to uh liberal fantasies and so we could take for example oh might as well get this one out of the way because i couldn't help but thinking about it uh the idea of for example a negro crowd now lebon characterizes the behavior of crowds in a sort of a barbarian context uh, for good or for ill. He does not moralize about it, but the idea is it's a, Can I ask a, question it's about a that? primitive, if you will, animal spirits. And what's funny, if you conceptual... Sure. Well, I'm wondering if you could define a crowd, because is this something that's stereotypically like on a street, or is this including things like when people are in a theater or even at a dinner party? I mean, what constitutes a crowd? Is it just a grouping of people? How many do you need? Because uh, there's it's many a forms psychological of category. He, he explains this. Uh, a crowd, you could have a lot of people together, 
but it could not be a crowd. And you could also have very few people together, but it could be a crowd. Uh, crowd formation is a psychological process by which the individual personality is subsumed into uh, a collective identity. You might you might call it so mind, jury, mind melding men. or something to that effect. I think mind melding would be a modern parlance that would kind of make sense for what is being it, described here. It's it's, a, it's it's not necessarily it's, that you just have a, a group of people doing a thing or together, or maybe even like a mob or a riot. It's it's more it's really trying to describe a coherent tribal identity with an element of everyone's kind of on the same page spiritually, mentally at the same moment. Yeah, I'll so, give you I'll give you I'll read for you exactly what Lebone says from from book one here, The Mind of Crowds. In its ordinary sense, the word crowd means a gathering of individuals of whatever nationality, profession, or sex, and whatever be the chances that have brought them together. From the psychological point of view, the expression crowd assumes quite a different signification. Under certain given circumstances, and only under those circumstances, an agglomeration of men presents new characteristics very different from those of the individuals composing it. The sentiments and ideas of all the persons in the gathering take one in the same direction, and their conscious personality vanishes. A collective mind is formed, doubtless transitory, but presenting very clearly defined characteristics. The gathering has thus become what, in the absence of a better expression, I will call an organized crowd, or if the term is considered preferable, a psychological crowd. It forms a single being and is subjected to the law of the mental unity of crowds. So again, one thing I wanted to get out of the way, uh, I wanted to discuss briefly the idea of the Negro crowd. Because the gathering, as it were. There's a certain conceit in Le bon, Yeah, in Le bon's, exactly. In Le bon's, uh, in the way that he explains this, it basically, it, it, in a certain way, it does shut out the idea of primitive people. Because the thing about primitive people is they're already on the level of the crowd. The crowd makes maybe more, you would say, more civilized men primitive. But when you have a gathering or crowd formation amongst primitive, so for example, the individual Negro, his will to Nike's is already expressed like he will loot individually it's just a question of if it can be gotten away with and when you have more negroes gathered together uh the individual will to nike is now a collective will to nikes or weaves or what have you uh, it's really not a very meaningful concept when you're dealing with primitives and savages because all that you're dealing with there is just a logistics problem of how do you how do you wrangle all of these Negroes uh, trying to loot the Nike store? I have it's I have really seen footage of uh, said race temporarily participating in things like carrying one end of a television, and so I think it can transcend the limitations of one's own footwear in certain circumstances. However, once the uh, television is brought to one of the individual's vehicles, a fight typically ensues, and so don't know how far the cooperation extends. Right. No, it's it's not a very... The concept doesn't apply well to savages. It, like, But it does apply, for example, to other races outside of uh, the Occident. Like, for example, the Koreans. Uh, I can't remember what it was that uh, pissed them off. I think it had something to do with the automotive industry or whatever. But there was like... They had a protest, I think, a couple... 
it was a decade ago. Oh, there's strikes. I know we've discussed this on the show, but well, isn't isn't like Borisoy kind of a knowledgeable of about that part of the world? Stuck to the streets. Well, I, I here I can tell you also yeah, what motivates uh, what, what, what makes Korean rage a lot. There's also Dokdo, which is that stupid two rocks that are that they fight with the Japanese over, although the Japanese don't even really care about it, but the Koreans get really worked up about it. Oh, yeah. They, uh, they, wanted, to, they wanted to lynch Apollo. What was it? What was that, that Hapa skater's name? Apollo Ono. They wanted to lynch Apollo Ono because he, the, the two Korean speed skaters during the Olympics, like, bumped into each other and he was able to take the gold. In fact, I, I believe they even, like, went after his, uh, his tour bus or something like that. Uh, they even, they, there were people who recorded a bunch of anti-American songs because of all that. They they get motivated by they easily get motivated by stuff like that. Uh, the automotive industry, I'm sure they get really upset about it as well. Because yeah, there's because, certain industries that take great pride. And Samsung is actually they are every Korean that I ever knew was felt a nationalist pride in in Samsung. Yeah, except for Kia, they forget about that one conveniently. Yeah. It's. He describes it as being a very feminine phenomenon, and uh, obviously the Asiatic races, especially the Koreans in particular, are very feminine people. Yes. Um, the the kind of the overall gist of his analysis of of a crowd is that if you're dealing with a crowd, what you're dealing with is women and children. The crowd could be made up of men entirely, but you have to remember that you're dealing with women and children. That is, you're dealing with people who are motivated entirely by emotions, cannot be reached by reason, and are uh, desperately in the thrall of some kind of religious metaphysical system that uh, they had no choice in at all, and they were simply born into, and they have a blind adherence to it. Uh, think of you know the church lady, et cetera. Like, that's who you're dealing with when you're dealing with the crowd. And I think what is going to trip up some people in trying to read this is that you follow from there, well, like, oh, then crowds are bad. Well, no, not exactly. That's just their nature. So here's a good one. Uh, the fundamental characteristics of the race, which constitute the unvarying source from which all our sentiments spring, always exerted an influence on the irritability of crowds, their impulsiveness and their mobility, as on all the people sentiments we have to study. All crowds are doubtless always irritable and impulsive, but with great variations of degree. Uh, for instance, the difference between a Latin and an Anglo-Saxon crowd is striking. The most recent facts in French history throw a vivid light on this point. The mere publication 25 years ago of a telegram relating an insult supposed to have been offered an ambassador was sufficient to determine an explosion of fury, whence followed immediately a terrible war. Oh, that would be the Franco-Prussian War, by the way. Uh, some years later, the Telegraph announcement of an insignificant reverse at Langston provoked a fresh explosion which brought about the instantaneous overthrow of the government. At the same moment, a much more serious reverse undergone by the English expedition to Khartoum produced only a slight emotion in England, and no ministry was overturned. Crowds are everywhere distinguished by feminine characteristics, but Latin crowds are the most feminine of all. Whoever trusts in them uh, may rapidly attain a lofty destiny, but to do so is perpetually skirting the brink of a tarpian rock with the certainty of one day being uh, precipit uh, precipitated from it. Uh, in other words, yeah, it's the quality, it's the most primitive and childish quality of the 
of this of a given race that's expressed in this kind of thing. So like a national slight to the uh, the Latin peoples of which he would uh, consider the French as well uh, is going to produce a chimp out. Whereas amongst the English people, uh, no such chimp out would happen even under much more like real slights, real real uh, political fuck-ups, if you will. Well, like Rotherham? The, the English will remain, to quote, to quote Pink Floyd, uh, ha- hanging on in quiet desperation, you know? Uh, you know, England, northern peoples are known for this. Uh, there's a lack of emotion and uh, detachment. Now, well, these you, are just you can, observations you can also of fact. It's not, I mean... He, you can also see this like in the religious wars, basically. I mean, like England, yes, had its civil wars and like, but the Anglo-Saxons developed the idea of, of kind of like a tolerant liberalism and out of the fact that they, we had, they had different religious dominate denominations and they would rather find a way to coexist with them than trying to just outright genocide them. You look at some, you look at a lot of continental Europe. I mean, the French decided that the French just outright wanted to basically just genocide the Huguenots and get rid of them completely. They had no, they wanted no toleration of that kind of stuff. And you see that, I mean, I, you can probably argue that's why Protestantism also never took root among the Latin peoples is that there was no toleration for that kind of stuff is that they were very hot blooded about that kind of stuff. That's one argument you could make. Yeah. And, and it will, and again, to clarify, this isn't a moral assessment. I mean, there's virtues to, there's virtues of different peoples um, amongst our extended family, uh, and in many respects, it's great to see a champ out. I mean, that like, <laughs> you know, this is a thing you have to keep in mind reading the work. It's just, it's just an assessment of facts, and do with them what you will. But you have to remember that if you're making an appeal to a crowd, what you need to be appealing to is their nature their nature, no matter what illusions they may have, you're appealing to their nature and you should treat them as women and children, which I know how much time we're going to spend about the God, but I mean, it offers so many examples for us and I have a lot of notes on it. Yeah. There's one example I'll provide right here where he talks, where he talks approvingly basically of the crowd is in the, in the chapter, he discusses the psychology of the jury. He spends a lot of it basically saying, like, juries don't care about facts. You, they, they look at a, when they assess somebody, they're assessing everything about that person, and the facts are the last thing on their minds. But he closes the chapter out by saying that if he were wrongly accused of a crime, he would rather appeal to he would rather appeal to a jury than he would to any kind of magistrate because he knows that he will never receive. Uh, justice from a magistrate, but he has the the chance of appealing to the convictions or the supposed convictions of a crowd on a jury, and that's a better that they, juries are fickle things, but you have a better chance of that than a magistrate. This is his argument. It, it was a crowd of angry white men who brought justice to the Jewish pedophile and rapist Leo Frank. Okay, yeah. And the thing about we could let's let's talk about let's talk about the orange man. Uh, because the orange man did have an acute understanding of this. He's actually, you know, they made a lot of comparisons to Adolf Hitler. Uh, and some of those are accurate. I think he had a, he, he did have a good sense, or at least his handlers had a good sense about how it was to appeal to the, 
the American crowd, the white crowd in America. Uh, the difference, of course, between uh, the Orange Man and Adolf Hitler is that Adolf Hitler cared about his country. But, you know, uh, to start with, we can describe the reason that they feared this and the reason that this had to be shut down is very simple. They, they're afraid of the crowd. They're afraid of the animal passions of it. They, the Jews in particular, uh, they're, they see behind a white crowd, they see Cossack furs, Roman centurion armor. You know, they, they see some, they see in their name, their deep racial ancestral memory, they see what's coming for them. And that's why it had to go is because like, even if this guy was using this to forward his own ends, this is something that they needed to shut down because the crowd carries immense power. It's an irrational force of history, and it's a very effective sledgehammer against institutions that have been propped up. Well, it's interesting. You you, you kind of orange faith and their god, Borzoi. You you look at you look at, I guess what you're saying, in modern America versus what is said um, by LeBon about the United States in his time. And, you know, he really views the United States as probably one of the most stable countries, one of the most anti-crowd countries uh, in the world at the time. Uh, he, has, uh, he has this one passage. Uh, the conclusion to be drawn from what proceeds is that it is not in institutions that the means is to be sought of profoundly influencing the genius of the masses – when we see certain countries such as the United States reach a high degree of prosperity under democratic institutions while others such as Spanish American Republican republics are found existing in a pitiable state of anarchy under absolutely similar institutions, we should admit that these institutions are as foreign to the greatness of the one as to the decadence of the other. People are governed by their character in all institutions which are not intimately modeled on that character and merely represent a borrowed garment. Uh, and he has several passages like this about the English, about the Anglo-Saxons, about the United States, and you know, it kind of repeats itself over and over. That at the time, he seemed to view the United States as this intensely stable uh, country with a high degree of openness and transparency and functionality. Uh, it, you compare it to today, where you know it's a it's a complete dysfunctional mess, and we're kind of talking about how. We can maybe unleash the crowd again, but uh, going off this work, I don't think LeBon would necessarily be in favor of that. And also, I would be curious if he would have been able to see that the United States would unravel that way. Uh, doesn't there's not a lot in this about countries necessarily unraveling into into the crowd, uh, with the exception of France, which he goes into at length about. Well, he identifies every great. The crowd is the is is standing over the grave of every empire. Uh, and to your point, Hans, what it would be would be Dinesh D'Souza, the Pajit, talking about Anglo-Saxon institutions. That's like that that hits it out of the park because he is very skeptical about institutions. He says very clearly that you cannot transfer the formal political institutions that are the product of a given particular people to another people. 
Well, that that's possible. Not, not only the fact that the reason D'Souza the is way. talking, the fact that D'Souza is selling to a white Republican slash Christian audience predominantly. Every time I've, it's been a while, but last time I saw uh, some clip of uh, the audience goers to his types of films, it's the type of people that would go to a Trump rally. Uh, and I didn't see a lot of Indians there. Um, so what does that say about the crowd, the actual crowd attending that they're even accepting or susceptible to that type of messaging from a guy who's clearly not of their stock? Well, the re reason that that crowd is susceptible to it, uh, like the retarded American conservative type, uh, they're susceptible to it because to them it's what, what they see as a vindication of their, it's a narcissistic vindication of their own self-worth as being adherents of the yeah, American civic idea nationalist, that, like yeah. even this guy who didn't know how to shit in a toilet is going to come here and say how great it is and it's a <laughs> it's a vindication that that they're a part of a system that is a this exceptional right. system democrats are the real racist or uh, it's the, really the real easy to fascist, play to yeah. the american crowd yeah exactly like every time you get frustrated with this kind of thing just remember that these people are women and children and, you know, if you're trying to operate in this environment, uh, if you're trying to do something, keep that in mind, because that's the fact that is necessary in order to, to operate in it. Uh, the, the orange, uh, Borja, did you want to open up with anything on the orange crowd? Because I have a lot of notes on this, actually. Uh, I don't know if I had anything I wanted to, to open up with. I was actually more curious about where you had, had wanted to go with it. I know you had, you kind of, started on this topic with the that he had a an adept understanding of the crowd and that 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 I definitely agree with that I people have said that uh Trump represented a lot of what was in white America but it's a particular crowd of white Americans we I mean you can demographically they are largely boomers but they're not all that's why we you know sometimes we get to talk about the spiritual boomer there is a an essence of white america he knew he, that he knew how to tap into and part of that was political strategy part of it i think was just that he had a feel for it he's you know people have have said, have noted before that uh, boomers got to vote <laughs> Got, boomers got to vote for their for their favorite actor as president, and then got to vote for their favorite TV reality star as president. Yes, and he has clout too. And this is a subject that is addressed in the later part of the book under a chapter regarding prestige. Uh, and he makes the observation as to why it is that people who become the leaders of any given working class movement tend not to come from the working class. Well, because the working class doesn't identify members of the working class as having prestige. And so, like, why does, you know, why can Trump talk about, like, middle America, the white working class, obviously, and euphemisms, but, you know, we all know what's going on. Yeah, show up in his private chair. Well, because that's, I mean, the dynamic is all there. There's an Atlantic piece we can link to where some view is right. It's, it's pretty low effort piece, but... Uh, Laban was in, invoked by the um, the uh, detractors, the system, uh, Jewish detractors of the Orange Movement. Uh, the piece came out in 2016, I believe. But the main thing here is, so we've discussed the uh, childlike and feminine characteristics of mass psychology, but also this 
we have to discuss myth. Uh, myth is myth is the guiding force here because I think personally we can we can start here. Uh, a couple of the really interesting questions I find about history. Uh, I have a couple a couple that are basically the same question, namely, uh, how much do facts have a bearing on history? Uh, the historical process and the future. How much are how much are facts relevant to that? And how relevant are reasons and arguments? There's a point to which they are, uh, but then again, as as long as you're engaging in something, especially in the post-industrial revolution, you know, in the modern age, uh, they're very they're they're not very significant things. What's significant is myth. And the man who can cash in on, capitalize on it, who can move a crowd, whatever end, is somebody who becomes an incarnation of the Godhead. Uh, Trump did become a god. He became a, an orange uh, figure of transcendence. Uh, you know, he says one of the most famous quotes from the book. I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but basically he says essentially that everyone who comes to lead crowds will always take the form of Caesar in every case. Uh, it's just a law, essentially, of history. It's a law, at least amongst our peoples, but even of others, too. It's it's how the man who can control the crowd, at least as himself. Now, we can discuss uh, the other forms of manipulation of, of crowds. For example, Edward Bernays was a big student of this book. Then uh, there are other ways, and those people were obviously behind Trump, too. It wasn't entirely some kind of feat on behalf of of, of the orange godhead that he was able to utilize the passions and impulses of the masses. But regardless, the point is, is that uh, a leader and a heroic figure uh, is always going to become a, a uh, myth in the flesh. And this is why, I mean, we, we talked about this. We've done a little bit of content on the my favorite science fiction novel, Dune, which is exactly about this. It's about a character in such a position who has an understanding of that, of that dynamic. Yeah, now, Dune Messiah really is, goes And the thing that well. frustrated by the system will... Yes, yes, it does. Uh, they're frustrated by, and what we can say about the redeeming qualities of the crowd is that the thing is, is like, for all of their social engineering, they really they can't change people. Any given people that they're that they're trying to do, there's only one way that they can change the nature of people, uh, and that's of course to actually destroy the bloodline. And he makes this point actually. I wish I had it exactly on hand. I might have to flip through the book a little bit to find it. The point being is that. Uh, the na a nature you, nature no. comes from birth, and the qualities and characteristics of people come from birth, and they're oh, they're always frustrated by this. They're frustrated by the fact that they need to do you know they need to put efforts behind you know like the orange movement, or the fact that they had to make a bunch of Christmas movies in the fifties and sixties, and before that even, you know they have to in order to insinuate themselves into the process they have to. They have to appeal to the actual nature of people. They would really like to create a true Homo Americanus, who is just like the creation of a Jewish laboratory that has no no race, no understanding. I mean, and Americans are not too far off, but they're still in in the sense that they they have very little understanding of anything. But it's still in the blood. There's still a blood memory. 
and they're up against this and that's a problem and that's why they fear the crowd because at, at the end of the day anyone who's able to mobilize the crowd is mobilizing uh, deeper currents in the blood and in in the in the racial memory now when you when you when you were talking because i'm trying to find the quote that you were referring to as well i don't know if i have it was it towards the back of the book because i i found a passage basically about the intermingling of races uh but destroying the bloodline is one thing but do you do you do you you think uh do you think it's possible for them to also and i don't because one thing that lebone doesn't really talk about as much is is culture as a as a force within the book can you destroy can you destroy people through destruction of their cultures is i one thing i wonder because and they've been trying to do that here and i don't i wonder to what extent they've been more successful at destroying the bloodline versus destroying the culture well uh, that's a really good question i i have a not so happy answer to that i would say that the a lot of what was in the American conception of tradition was already its own enemy. It was already the enemy of the people. And the, the, you destroy the culture in order to destroy the race. The, the, the quote I was looking for is he says, a people is an organism created by the past. And like every other organism, it can only be modified by slow hereditary accumulations. Now, he makes the point... Uh, regarding both the French, he doesn't talk about the Bolshevik Revolution, obviously, because it hadn't happened yet. But he makes the point essentially that you can't really, the culture distorters are not really able to create new religions. You can only kind of tweak around the edges. And then even an expression of violent atheism, uh, it has in itself uh, Christian roots. So like after the French Revolution, it didn't take long before the people were demanding that things go back to as they were. And you can look at uh, the Bolshevik Revolution and, and how Russia, the zombie corpse of the uh, of the USSR is now, uh, where they you know, affirm the traditions that existed before. People, uh, they're not, it's not as easy to do that as people, if they could do that, they would have done it and it would be over already. Uh, people are very stubborn. That's that's the thing. They they will they will co- go back to things that uh, are their nature. Like you can't change their nature. I mean, even when I mean, this is a whole other topic. But even when you talk about like uh, the, how Europe was Christianized, I mean, in order to appeal to convert uh, European peoples to this this foreign faith, it was necessary to make it appeal to them in a context of their own racial nature right yeah i mean you actually saw this with the koreans as well not to not to bring them back up again but one reason why the koreans more easily christianized versus a lot of the other east asians is their um their native religion had kind of a a three-part or uh, i can't remember it was three if they it was they had three deities or they had something similar to a three-part God within it. So for Koreans, it was actually a lot easier for them to pick it up because they were able to make an appeal based off of that native religion that they had. Uh, similar to the Chinese, they, they had no, they found no analogous word for 
a monotheistic god. So what they ended up, the translation ended up being uh, eldest, eldest, eldest brother, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, to fit into the Confucian system. Uh, because when you understand values as an expression of nature, you see that it's not quite as easy as you think to just change a, a people fundamentally through ideas. Uh, so, for example, he says, uh, this factor, race, must be placed in the first rank, for in itself, it far surpasses in importance all the others. We have sufficiently studied another work. It is, uh, therefore, needless to deal with it again, blah, blah, blah. Uh, <clears throat> I showed in a previous volume what an historical race is and how its character once formed. It possesses as a result of the laws of heredity such power that its beliefs, institutions, and arts, in a word, all the elements of its civilization are merely the outward expression of its genius. We showed that the power of the race is such that no element can pass from one people to another without undergoing the most profound transformations. Environment, circumstances, and events represent the social suggestions of the moment. They may have a considerable influence, but this influence is always momentary if it be contrary to the suggestions of the race. That is to those which are inherited by a nation from the entire series of its ancestors. We shall have occasion several chapters of this work to touch again upon racial influence and to show that this influence is so great that it dominates the characteristics peculiar to the crowds. It follows from this fact that the crowds of different countries offer very considerable differences of belief and conduct and are not to be influenced in the same manner. Point point being there there's no the 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 first thing is always going to be people's given nature. And therefore it's not really possible to have a universal crowd psychology or mass psychology. Mass psychology is an expression of a given people. Uh, it's for this reason that if you were to have an empire uh, that is multi has you know multitudinous peoples uh, is necessary of course to have a racial caste system because it, all peoples need to be treated according to their nature i mean obviously you could rule over them unjustly but uh, that's the way that you do it justly and it's the way that you can make things work because you know if you're appealing to a given people what works in one place is not going to work in another because you're you're dealing with a with a totally different animal and quite literally, an animal. The crowd is an animal. And that's actually what's striking to me about this book, because it, it is about the crowd as animal, but he also stresses time and time again, these are different animals. There are racially different crowds. There are heroic crowds. There are criminal crowds. Sometimes those racial crowds are the criminal crowds. But the, the dispassionate way that he, he talks about it allows you to like that's one reason why Lebone's work tends to be either seen as controversial or just like generally it's just ignored and dismissed unless they want to bring up some kind of negative association with someone they want to moralize about but what he's what he fundamentally says is that every crowd is different and you have to understand it on its own merits if you wish to control that crowd understand how, you must understand what goes to the core of who that crowd is and how do you make an appeal on that. I mean, a lot of this is why a lot of these more liberal or scientific ideas 
ha- still have a lot of staying power because people want to try and treat. You know, you see this all the time in America. It's like, well, we we just want these non-white groups to to be more white, and so we're going to talk to them like they're white people. And well, now you have somebody who hates you even more because you don't understand how to talk to this crowd. You don't understand how the this crowd functions and what an appeal to them would need to constitute because you refuse to confront that essential nature. The libtard is in a difficult place in this, in this whole environment. It's um, Jews understand this perfectly well, uh, but the libtard really struggles here. It's because the libtard is an elitist, but they're an elitist for whom the mythic basis of their power is that of like the lowest form of human hominid of the the most degraded and bestial of a two-legged specimen um so they encounter a problem here and it's why if you attack for example the will the supposed will the manufactured uh media product of you know what take your pick like blm or whatever like what this is is because in a society that is based on this the, the, the foundation of a democratic society you know in before Ma, Ma republic like the foundation of a democratic society in other words the rule by crowds means in actuality the rule by committee or the rule by the managers of the crowd so when you attack the crowd, you attack its handlers who are the rulers of the system. So you attack the people who create the the uh, ideas for the crowd. Any attack on that on that mass man is an essential attack on his manager, on the committee of the crowd. Yeah, I think it's important but to, to the to problem add being to that is that the liberals themselves are elitists and the yeah, go ahead, Hans. Well, sorry, sorry to cut you off. There's a I guess a little delay, but uh to, to hammer home what Nick is saying, uh I don't think that Laban necessarily denotes that a crowd is always um a mob or it's pure anarchy. Uh he does make several uh, proclamations that this can be a uh, a controlled demolition, if you will. This can be uh, purely the manufactured. The 300 Spartans who stood at the hot gates of Thermopylae were a crowd. Exactly. He actually— All great you know, heroic he, military victories have been committed by crowds. Yeah, and, and to add to that, you know, one of the types of crowds he describes that's actually very susceptible but also very effective— um, is the caste, and one of the examples he gives is uh, would be the military, and so this this is generally a or a priestly caste uh, is another way of thinking of it, but a warrior caste is a particular kind of crowd. Now, let loose and commanded, it, it is effective, but it is a it is a, it just it meets these criteria of a crowd. But what Nick is saying is that I think a lot of people have these conceptions of. Uh, of anarcho tyranny, let's say, but they don't necessarily really think critically about what that is. And what Laban attempts to do, and I think what we're attempting to do, is really demonstrate what that actually means. This is an old term. Uh, I, I think TRS popularized it uh, immensely for many years, and uh, and kind of 
Well, uh, Sa- Sam Francis, I believe, was the earliest user of that it. term. Yeah, yeah. He, he coined the term. And uh, I, I think in podcasting, yeah, TRS might have helped po- bring the uh, the term back. No, now uh, everyone uses back it. In. But, yeah, but now, yeah. Everyone, yeah, now everyone uses it. But yeah, but, it was uh, Sam Francis that basically really developed the uh, idea behind that, especially with his... Uh, he was he was also cribbing off of uh, the managerial revolution of Burnham, right? And so, the anarcho tyranny really is when a crowd is perfectly well engineered and utilized for very specific purposes, and is remains there's there's an element of permanence to it. So these types of crowds are in a permanent state of flux. But they permanently exist. They are always there. And they're always ready to be exploited. You just have to direct the right inputs to this kind of crowd. And you can suddenly achieve massive social ends, massive physical ends. Uh, People often will throw back in your face if you claim that there might be a conspiratorial element to something. Well, that many people couldn't get away with it. Someone would slip up. But this is a good example of how that really works in practicality. You don't need a million people across the country in on the plan. You need a few hundred, maybe a couple dozen, maybe a dozen, who actually know how to engineer that crowd to achieve your ends in a broad way. That's really what Nick and and what LeBon are describing here. That, that's truly what this is. It's not necessarily something to the effect of always anarchy or it's always yeah. controlled. It's, it's well, a nice nuanced mix of the two that's very dangerous. Yeah, and LeBone's got a great... raw matter of history. There has never been in history a great man who is not also a great master of the crowd. Mm-hmm. Period. LeBone's got a great chapter as well on uh, on basically the overproduction of elites and how they lead to people that can basically stir up, stir up these crowds or even or even on the other side of it, create this kind of anarcho tyranny. He's uh, if I, I quote a little bit here, the state which manufactures by dint of textbooks, all these persons possessing diplomas can only utilize a small number of them and is forced to leave the others without employment. It is obliged in consequence to resign itself to feeding the first mentioned and to having the others as its enemies from top to the bottom of the social pyramid, from the humblest clerk to the professor and the prefect, the immense mass of persons boasting diplomas besiege the professions. While a businessman may, man has the greatest difficulty in finding an agent to represent him in the colonies, thousands of candidates solicit the most modest official posts. There are 20,000 schoolmasters and mistresses without employment in the Department of the Senate alone. All the persons who disdain in the fields or the workshops look to the state for their livelihood. And the number of the chosen being restricted, that of the discontented, is perforce immense. The latter are ready for any revolution, whoever be its chiefs and whatever the goal they aim at. The acquisition of knowledge for which no use can be found is a sure method of driving a man 
to revolt. And he, he goes on a little bit later to say, the army of educated persons without employment is considered in China at the present day as a veritable national calamity. It is the same in India that where since the English have opened schools, not for education, for educating purposes, as is the case of in England itself, but simply to furnish the indigenous inhabitants with instruction, there has been formed a special class of educated persons, the Babus, who when they do not obtain employment, become irre irreconcilable enemies of the English rule. In the case of all the baboos, whether provided with employment or not, the first effect of their instruction has been to lower their standard of morality. And you can see you can see both in that a an argument for how the déclassé types become the, the dynamite of revolutions, but you can also see that with this kind of institutional chaos that's created in this overproduction of elites that you have basically these little mini masters and functionaries that are formed to basically try and manage and stir up the crowds. This, this is pure Jacobinism. This, yeah. is, this is completely what it is. And we have a very perverse form of it today with some other elements, but you could partially describe at least the mechanical means by which, uh, the events of uh, summer 2020 were carried out as a form of Jacobinism. And if you looked at it mechanically, I've brought this up before, it was almost to a letter. A select few uh, white-ish looking individuals uh, who were clearly some kind of well-educated folk, but uh, dressed up like vagrants. This is a very odd character that they would create for themselves, but this is who they were. And they would sort of direct the groups from one place to another. They were leading packs. They were leading hundreds at a time, occasionally, giving orders. And it was always very broad orders. It was very, very broad kind of bloodthirsty proclamations. But that's how it functioned. That's how it played out. So this is a crowd. This is kind of controlled anarchy. But everyone there was basically under a trance. These people were psychotic. They were just totally out of their minds. And this is very effeminate kind of strange behavior where you're just sort of lashing out. You're just giving in to your emotions. You're throwing a massive billion-dollar temper tantrum everywhere you go. Uh, that's, I think, what Laban is sort of getting at. And I, whenever he brings up Jacobinism particularly or the events of 1848 and so forth, it has that same feel over and over again, that these are just sort of goofy crowds led by very pernicious people who are sort of poking and prodding and poking and prodding and trying to get these mass groups of people in a trance to do some broadly defined thing. No one really understands what that's ultimately going to be, but we kind of have an idea of what we're attempting to achieve here. Break something, overthrow something, run people out, get this. It's, it's very primitive. No, it's not. There's no complex politics there. It's it's achieving primitive goals. It's a it's a hammer, and when all you have is a hammer, everything is a nail. He, he makes sure to emphasize that the only real capacity 
of the crowd is as a destructive force. Now, that could be a, if you will, creative destructive force, as in if you, you know, when something is leaning, it maybe should be pushed. Uh, so what he says, for example, and to some extent of maybe you would say the defense of the potentiality of crowd, he says a crowd may be guilty of murder, incendiarism, uh, and every kind of crime, but it is also capable of very lofty acts of devotion, sacrifice, and disinterestedness, disinterestedness of, act, uh, of acts much loftier indeed than those of which the isolated individual is capable. Appeals to sentiments of glory, honor, and patriotism are particularly likely to influence the individual forming part of a crowd, and often to the extent of obtaining from him the sacrifice of his life. History is rich in examples analogous to those furnished by the Crusaders and the Volunteers of 1793. Collectives alone are capable of great disinterestedness and great devotion. How numerous are the crowds that have heroically faced death for the beliefs, ideas, and phrases that are scarcely understood. I have another question. Sure. Go ahead and ask. Shoot. Does so Sobon? I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Lebon. The the author. Lebon. Oh, sorry. Lebon. The the French guy. <laughs> um, does he? Uh, does he? I mean, I think this was written probably in the time before mass media. But uh, let's just let me ask you guys, as readers of the author, and livers of our current year and era uh, and the mass media we've all grown up in, including mass education. Uh, how would you say the role of the media and the academic institutions play a role in shaping the crowd versus the stereotypical Caesar? Because I contend well, that we are living in an era where the subliminal messaging of the television, Facebook, Instagram play more of a role than our politicians do. Uh, and I think that is really defining how the crowd is shaped much more oh, so than the older I, techniques. Oh, Nick, Nick, because I think you have a lengthier Please. answer. Can I just, can I just quickly question. answer? Yeah, because I think you have a much Please more do. robust answer. Yeah. I think you have a much more robust answer than than what I have. But what I will point out is that he does mention the power of of media briefly, like in more of like an aside, like when he talks about how the French were uh, whipped up into a fury over over a telegram, which is a type of media. But you're talking about mass media, which I would argue that's why Edward Bernays wrote propaganda was a kind of sequel to this because now they had this mass media apparatus. To work with and so you take that how do you whip up the crowd how you how do you manipulate the crowd how do you work the crowd that's i think a lot of that's covered in propaganda by bernays but what were you going to say nick i was also going to bring up bernays yeah the book was written before uh, what we think of post 20th century context of, as mass media and bernays clearly learned the lesson i LeBon does mention the admin, et cetera. And I think that this is, I mean, this would be my answer to why it is that capitalism won out in the 20th century. It's because capitalism is the most effective form of crowd management. 
because you belong the the capitalist consumer uh, that is a crowd the consumer crowd and the consumer crowd is the easiest to manage uh, because you can make it superficially political as well even though it's a depoliticized collective so you're able to make pseudo political ideas as capitalist products and it's very easy to manage because the problem that they they have and i mentioned this earlier but they actually do have an issue with with creating myth they can't i mean myth, this is the this is the key to all of i mean honestly it's the key to all of history as far as i'm concerned uh, and plato knew this too this is why like plato versus the poets the myth makers hold hold the real power but myth making isn't as easy as just like doop to doop by you know write a thing like paint a thing whatever like here we are it you have to it's an organic process that you have to really deeply be a part of it has to be something that comes from a given people like the jews would never have been able to take over uh, the american uh, culture landscape if they did not insert themselves in a way that was appealing to the established norms and traditions, uh, values and prejudices and sentiments, et cetera, of the American people. It was very necessary that they do it that way. That's why they, you know, change their names, would make uh, shitty Christmas movies, whatever. I mean, obviously it's degraded to the point where, you know, their, their myth-making machine is, is, is not as effective as it once was, but in order to control things, you have to make it appear to people that like this is already what they wanted. Bernays had a really good understanding of that. And when you present things in a way that is like it already exists as something that has prestige and there's already because you can create with mass media, you can create essentially a synthetic crowd. You can create a crowd that doesn't actually exist. Uh, I mean, so much of what you see on online, like you don't even know if you're dealing with a, a real person or not. Or if this is just a, a creation, like essentially like a Madison Ave creation. You know, I mean, that's why, like, I mean, one of the famous Bernays, uh, one of like the Bernays greatest hits was the uh, was like the, the Torches of Freedom. People always mention that one uh, with the, with the uh, women suffragette uh, smoking. Right. Right. And you make it seem that there's this. I mean, this is how they this is a principle they apply to the color revolutions as well that you create the semblance that a crowd exists where it doesn't actually, when really it's just like a handful of like traitors and degenerates uh, who are collaborating with foreign capitalists and uh, Jewish uh, intelligence services, essentially. You uh, see this. You concept. create the. Sim- yeah, no, finish, your po- finish, your, finish your point, then I'll jump in. Uh, I, I, I did. I did. Please go ahead. You see, you, you. I mean, I'm glad you brought up the online example because that's a great way that you see both organic and artificial crowds being formed, created, and broken apart. I, I've been online for a long, for a long time, and I've seen the cycle of of an e- of of an ecosystem online and the way it it can develop and change. All all it takes is a couple of very of very motivated agents to basically engage in consensus cracking where you can have people who are on the same page they break they they're able to crack that break that and then they create either they're able to change the crowd and move it in a different direction the online crowd 
or they are able to engineer and create brand new ones or artificial ones. So there are, you, you spend enough time online, you might feel like you're going insane where it seems like, uh, do you, am I alone in the opinion that I have? Because things will change really quickly. Well, they do that in order to basically get you to change your opinion because they want you to go along with a crowd that they've created. You can see that on the cultural level as well, where they've created all these boutique issues that are not popular at all but when a crowd cannot when a crowd has been broken or it's been distracted or if it's been ch changed or altered or messed with any number of ways something that's like that in their nature they're just they will be inclined to reject you can get them over time to accept all the new stuff on any 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 cultural thing you can get them to accept it and begin to internalize that this is how it is because they're creating their own crowd. Now, I I think Nick would say, and I would agree with him on this, that over time that breaks down because people just return to what their nature is. But for a time, you can create these artificial crowds and get people to go along with whatever whatever you want if you're motivated enough to do it and you have the right agents in place and you have the right the the know-how of how to manipulate public opinion. There was a there was a very good documentary put out you, by you can make people see uh, things that don't even exist mm -hmm. yeah i was saying there was a good documentary put out by uh, ex infowars reporter millie weaver uh called shadowgate about a year ago and it profiles um i forget his name but he was one of the guys working for the trump team and then he started realizing this was uh, being used for other purposes as well but he, uh, he describes what they were doing as uh, Interactive Internet Activities, or IIA, uh, and he f effectively admits that it, it's psychological warfare uh, against uh, crowds of people on the internet. And they're using techniques of psychology, uh, gang stalking uh, is sort of a concept that is in the real world, but you can think of it like Borzler's describing of isolating people uh, or intimidating people or or rushing people with uh, artificial bot generated uh, opinions, things like that uh, that can really manipulate uh, people who are using uh, internet uh, platforms. And it's uh, it's a tool that was sort of misdirected and blamed on foreign actors, but it's something that the US government certainly does. Uh, very effectively and it's uh makes a lot of sense that they would try to blame it on other people uh but uh i i, I just would underscore what borzor is saying and i would recommend that film it, it's quite good it's it's free if uh if you go on one of these um non-youtube streaming platforms at least it was for a while i think alex jones put it out for free and then took it down because millie and him were having some kind of a legal battle uh but uh, i downloaded a copy when it came out and uh i would uh recommend anybody searching for shadowgate if they haven't seen it the way they isolate people is alex also, jones is a very effective this. master of oh. crowds oh yeah He's got that in, in another life, quality. he would have been a, uh, yeah, he, he, exactly. He would have been a preacher uh, in another life. He would have been like a Joel Osteen type figure or John Hagee, whatever. One of these 
Well, he, I mean, he's not far off. Obviously, he supports the same ends as those people, uh, which is get rich, marry a Jew, and sell your country out to Israel. But uh, the orange man, like at the height of his power, he could have gotten people. This is why the institutional conservatives uh, hated him so much is because he was he was able to take people off brand just like with a wave of his hand. You know, all the stuff that all the the symbolism. I mean, LeBon talks also about the great man and the master manipulator of the crowd as being essentially a magician and how he can invoke. And by the way, the key to that, the, the key technique to that process is repetition. Uh, you say like nonsense words like MAGA, like that's a, a nonsense magical incantation. And it's repeated enough and it's associated with someone with prestige who's been able to tap into this uh, primal mythic vein uh, in the crowd that he's dealing with. And it, it takes on this, it's like this amorphous thing that doesn't have any meaning or it just, it's, it's a nonsense thing, but it has power because of everything that's behind it and what it's tapping into. I mean, at the height of his power, the orange man could have like gotten up in this crowd and been like, yeah, we're going to glass Israel and people would have cheered. And that's why that's why he was that's why he was feared. I mean, that's that was the whole problem. It's like because he also cultivated this, uh, uh, you know, persona. And I mean, maybe it's I mean, it's to a certain extent, maybe it's just actually just how he is. But it is very unpredictable. Right. And the institutional conservatives hated this because they have like made their fucking bread and butter. I, I, I think he just has ADHD. Of, like, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well. Regardless, I, I, you know, no, man. I mean, like the guy, who knows? People make a lot of assumptions. All, all we can go off of is his actions, right? But, you know, he's very, he's very skilled at it. And he had people eating out of the palm of his hand. And the way he could change what were the, the you know, established uh, positions of the party. Uh, that he belonged to and what he ran on and et cetera. Like the way he could, he could just take it, take a position that uh, was people would love it. And then, but the institutional conservatives would, would, would hate it for it. To, uh, to answer Adam's question uh, earlier about the role of mass media in, in crowds uh, and, you know, if LeBon accounts for that, I think he he does. He accounts for uh, mass media in a sense broadly because he's speaking broadly uh, up until the end of the 19th century. And there was already kind of the early beginnings of mass media. But in the time frame he's covering, which is pretty broad, uh, media was always a part of crowd movements, of crowds, of revolutionary movements. Um, particularly from the 17th century onwards, uh, we have an explosion in revolutionary activity. Uh, we have an explosion in new political regimes uh, all around the world, and particularly in Europe, uh, but also in parts of Asia. Uh, this is occurring primarily uh, as a mechanism through uh, through media consumption, media distribution. Uh, this was certainly an element of the American Revolution uh, to an immense extent. Uh, the, the production, distribution, and consumption of media at a, at a rate 
that up until that time was nearly unparalleled uh, was a fundamental part of the revolution. Uh, and even prior to it, a fundamental part of the early underpinnings of, uh, of the American Revolution and just the American cause uh, going back decades before it all began. Uh, people were writing letters to each other constantly. People were distributing newspapers. They were distributing small pamphlets. They were distributing le- they were distributing public letters. They were uh, distributing, I think, what you could call like a early form of a maybe a newsletter to an extent, uh, public proclamations. Uh, people were distributing media immensely. Um, this is certainly true of the French Revolution. Uh, there's there's elements of this that started to occur in China at various points, actually, which is very interesting. Uh, and this is certainly a, a huge element of a lot of activity in the 19th century. Uh, you know, so when Le Bon is really viewing the scope of history as he's writing this this work, this is a huge part of the movements of 1848. This played a, an immense role in various uh, South American and Latin American uh, revolutionary movements, uh, political movements. This These played roles in economic movements, uh, the early sort of, uh, I guess you could call them labor strikes in certain parts of the world in England, the United States in the latter half of the 19th century. There's lots of media going around. There's lots of media distribution, media consumption, because literacy is so high. And the uh, industrial mechanisms for actually producing all that media and distributing all that media is definitely there. The only thing that's necessarily – so that, that aspect has not changed. So I think Le Bon would regard it as, a, as an accelerant, okay? What he's viewing is a is is more of a uh, natural force of human civilization or human life. Media is an accelerant. Modern mass media is just, let's say, an accelerant squared. Yes, it's unprecedented, but the underpinnings of it haven't fundamentally changed from two or three centuries ago. You're simply distributing forms of media to be consumed for a social cause. It's just grown at the speed at which it can be distributed. And the, I guess uh, the major uh, uh, element of digital recording also adds uh, maybe another, maybe a newer, new-ish element to it, but not, not that much. Uh, but then again, the mass media distribution kind of parallels mass society. Suddenly you have hundreds of millions of people in some countries, billions of people globally. So it makes sense you'd have a, a faster, more complex, broader media system to fuel all of that. It will it'll probably ebb and flow with the population of the planet is my assumption. Uh, so I don't know necessarily if it's playing a role in of itself. I think it plays a role as a fundamental accelerant, and it's just a tool you can use to accomplish uh, this sort of social activity. And if you want to accomplish this social activity with hundreds of millions of people, then it makes sense to use it. Uh, If you're trying to accomplish a crowd, a social activity along the lines of, say, the IRA, 
uh, if you're trying to work with small groups of the IRA cells, for example, mass medium, yeah, it kind of works. You're trying to, you would use a different tool of communication. You would use a different ideological tool set. You would use a different physical tool set to accomplish all of that. So it's just a matter of scale, I would say, what you're trying to accomplish. But it hasn't, I wouldn't say it's changed anything fundamentally in of itself, mass media. It's just a newer tool for a newer kind of number of people. I would agree. The one fundamental change, though, that I think that mass media has introduced is that it allows people who have in of themselves zero charisma or ability to deal with people uh, to manipulate crowds in a way that in the past, the only people who would really be able to be like, you know, the whispers and leaders of a crowd had to themselves uh, they had to put themselves out there. But now you have, you know, uh, hook, hook nose, beady eyed, like the, just disgusting hominids in the back room of, you know, some buildings, Madison Avenue or whatever in, in D.C., Tel Aviv. Well, uh, Silicon Valley, Angeles, you know, yeah. who are able to Silicon Valley, yeah, who are able to effectively insert themselves in and perform a role that was previously they would need in the past. They would need to you know, be able to control the person who did this. And they still, I mean, obviously that game has not changed, but they're able to kind of get more directly into uh, the, the process of the crowd formation and the political implications of it uh, from the, from the masses. But I think that has, that is one thing that is, is a new development on some level. It's hard. It's really hard to imagine these people in in a uh, in the 18th century being able to quite easily whip up a crowd the way they can now, or to manipulate and lie to a crowd the way that they can now, just because they wouldn't have a feel for for being able to 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 tap into that quite as easily. They could, I mean, like you can always get like the trader types and and the functionary types to go along with them, but. It, to be able to tap right into the heart of a crowd and break a crowd or to manipulate a crowd, it requires a certain level of abstraction and diffusion if you're not a member that rises up from said crowd. Well, I, I, I can think of so many examples of how this is true today with electronic media. Uh, there have been tons and tons of uh, Project Veritas exposés of how Silicon Valley's uh, liberal or left-wing bias is uh, ever-present. And one of them comes to mind from uh, Google, where they have this, uh, or they had this machine learning uh, platform called ML Fairness, which effectively was a de-ranking a lot of the search results that they deemed to be too uh, politically incorrect. And they would effectively just shift everything uh, around on their uh, on their own particular uh, political biases. But what also that demonstrates is, to Nick's point, these people don't really have a common human touch. They actually use, without going into what machine learning really is, it's just a very automated and brute force way of assessing 
popular opinion. And then you can inject, you know, your own sort of skew to it. But it's what YouTube does when it recommends videos to you. Uh, it's the same thing for search results and all that. And so uh, they're just biasing it to their own particular uh, points of view as opposed to your preferences when you go to YouTube. Um, but they, they screw that stuff up too um, as of a few years ago. I mean, it used to actually be a great place to find interesting things, but not so much anymore. <clears throat> not because we were thrown off, but because basically everybody interesting was thrown off. Um, but that's just an example. And uh, however, what, what I would say is don't underestimate this stuff if you think that they're uh, weaklings. Uh, they, they are in a in traditional sense, but what the computer enables them to do is obviously compensate for their lack of social graces. Uh, and it extends this artificial representation of it, but in a way that it is so, um, so much bigger quantitatively rather than qualitatively, uh, it really just overwhelms everything. And I would argue that today we're really living in an electronic age where charisma, uh, just like, you know, who are the billionaires? I mean, most of these guys are, you know, the, the guy who got beat up in high school kind of thing. Um, and it goes to show you that that doesn't matter as much anymore. What really matters is, are you able to leverage technology? Uh, and if you're effective enough at it, you are much more powerful than the cool kid from the cool club or the, the, the cool click in high school. Um, so I think somebody like Trump, honestly, was, you know, if he didn't have his father's wealth, he probably wouldn't have been nearly as um, successful, but uh, his personality is the sort of uh, type that you would traditionally associate in a bad like 80s high school movie of being like, one of the popular kids versus one of the nerds. But the nerds are getting their revenge and do not underestimate these guys because they've been dreaming of this for all their lives and some of them have successfully obtained this power and I would say this extends also to some of the people in the left in general where they've, they've grabbed power and now they're, they're exacting revenge uh, on the rest of the population. And I don't, I don't really see an, an end to this at any point in the future because uh, this stuff is very powerful. And if the people who go to Trump rallies, if all they can do is really get a Trump, uh, we're kind of doomed. We, we have to do better than this. I mean, I don't want to get too into the weeds, but, you know, there was a lot of efforts. You can say the same thing about right winger types, like reactionary types who they have absolutely no skill for it themselves. And so they want to, you know, they look down their nose and they want to issue any kind of participation in uh, crowd politics. Uh, for lack of a better description, and they want to bypass that, and they want to go straight to the managerial class and offer them their you know technocratic schemes. And what happened in in the recent history, um, speaking of the internet, uh, was people there was a lot that was going on organically on the internet. Uh, people took notice of it and were trying to find ways to game it. Yeah, in fact, actually, because they themselves, you know, they, they're. Yeah, Please Lamone. Go ahead, Tarzai. This is, yeah, I think, something you you could speak to. Yeah, no, it's um, 
that was the, that was the one thing I, I found most fascinating, really, about about this work, is because it, it it pairs really well, like I said, with the Italian uh, elite school theory, and, and you could also it also actually really pairs well with George Sorel with his with how much he stressed the importance of of myth. Now, you could see like Sorel's work more about like how to like of how to how can we motivate these crowds, whereas LeBone's just saying, well, this is just how the crowd is. But it's the myth of the general strike. Mm-hmm. But time and time again, LeBone takes a very Ted. We said that he do, he's he doesn't have values in this, but he actually does tend to take a dim view of the psychology of, of the cast. And he the, this is where he he he's, he strikes such a strong contrast with reactionary types. Like I found this passage to be kind of a refutation of reactionary notions with and how they feel kind of about about technocracy and and the more managerial classes and and the such but must it be believed that with a restricted suffrage a suffrage restricted to those intellectually capable if it be desired an improvement would be affected in the votes of crowds i cannot admit for a moment that this would be the case and that for the reasons I have already given touching the mental inferiority of all collectivities, whatever their composition, in a crowd, men always tend to the same level. And on general questions, a vote recorded by 40 academics is no better than that of 40 water carriers. I do not in the least believe that any of the votes for which universal suffrage is blamed, the reestablishment of the empire, for instance, would have fallen out differently had the voters been exclusively recruited among learned and liberally educated men. It does not follow because an individual knows Greek or mathematics, is an architect, a veterinary surgeon, a doctor or a barrister that he's endowed with a special intelligence of social questions. All our political economists are highly educated, being for the most part professors or academics. Yet is there a single general question, protection, bimetallism, and so on, on which they have succeeded in agreeing? The explanation is that their science is only a very attenuated form of our universal ignorance. With regard to social problems, owing to the number of unknown quantities they offer, men are substantially equally ignorant. And what what really drives home because like, again like when people think the crowd they think the rabble and of course we've already established that Labone says like no there's crowds are a particular thing and they can be range in many different sizes so for for reactionaries who do tend to take a, a dim view of of the rabble of or rather the large mass of the crowd all what Labone says like well you're no different you're just a different type of crowd and you're a crowd that has a high estimation of your own intelligence but you're you are subject to all of the same rules that govern the crowd you really don't know any better than the crowd you think you're looking down upon and it i think it takes somebody and we see that with For, trump yes that it takes it takes somebody with a very certain skill and Honestly, would have to have pairing this again with, with, with talking about Sorrel. You need something with a truly idealistic and visionary myth that they want to guide the crowd into to do something positive with this. At some point, we've had so many people that exploit this for personal gain and for and for the worst outcomes. But you need somebody who understands this and can has that Trumpian quality or a great man quality, even better. Or a Hitler-esque quality, if you want to go, if you want to shoot for the moon here, of somebody who can marshal all these elements together towards a single procreative, creative, 
destruction towards uh, uh, towards evil impulse. A civilization building no impulse, matter how as it intelligent were. they are. Yeah, civilization building impulse. Because no matter how intelligent these people are, ultimately what they are is parasites off of great men. Because the great men are the only ones who are going to be able to actualize any of this. And they want to worm their way into the door. I mean, for what reason should we think that the myths that are governing, you know, the the crowds, the intellectual crowds, why are those myths superior to the myths that are going to be behind the, the uh, as you said, the rabble, you know, the the unwashed masses? Why why are those myths superior? I mean, they're both self-satisfying. Typically, there's a good here's a good one. Uh, the great leaders of crowds, such as Buddha, Jesus, Muhammad, Joan of Arc, and Napoleon have possessed this form of prestige in a high degree. And to this endowment is more particularly due the position they attain. Gods, heroes, and dogmas win their way in the world of their own inward strength. They are not to be discussed. They disappear, indeed, as soon as discussed. We could talk a little bit about... Um, the, the sort of do you want to talk about libtards? I don't know. It's up to you. Oh, I would. I always love talking about libtards. I, I mean, <laughs> I know. I know you get mad about libtards, and you had some great rants on that. Uh, but I find the I find libtard psychology fascinating on on a, on a perverse level. So, what would you would, love to Would you uh, yeah, I, concede that there's a difference between a liberal and a libtard, or are they all the same? Well, there there may have uh, yeah, once a been a liberal is a conservative, a and a libtard yeah. is a democratic uh, democratic system apparatus. <laughs> I mean, because yeah, American like right wing patriotards are also liberals, but a libtard is a um, a libtard is who they would call liberals. Um, they're obviously all liberals. <laughs> yeah, a libtard. Uh, yeah, libtard is basically just a a fervent janissary for whatever's whenever they're told the prestige is in fact actually yeah lebone yeah. has and right. this actually kind of fits into the libtard uh, psychology here lebone has a has a great passage on the uh on the power of prestige he says the mere fact that an individual occupies a certain position possesses a certain fortune or bears certain titles endows him with prestige however slight his own personal worth a soldier in uniform a judge in his robes always enjoys prestige pascal has very properly noted the necessity for judges of robes and wigs without them they would be stripped of half their authority the most unbending socialist is always somewhat impressed by the sight of a prince or a marquis key and the assumption of such titles makes the robbing of tradesmen an easy matter he has that he has a similar um uh aside in his section on jury systems actually and he notes how juries are particularly um impressionable under prestige uh, as one factor uh you know, it's interesting. You can you can kind of see this a lot with the the worship of the prosecutor in American legal culture. Um, it never really occurs to many people that a prosecutor might be a bad guy, might be corrupt, um, uh, might be personally corrupt, 
might just be personally well, compromised. They're the uh, reciprocal it, of a defense attorney in that their win record is how many people they put behind bars exactly, versus the defense it, yes, wanting to yes, get them and, off, whether they're guilty or not. And that's really how they work, unfortunately. Yes. And, and uh, you see this, too, with the, uh, the, the uh, prestige assigned to judges um, in particular. And again, it never really occurs to people that judge could be corrupt, judge could be a bad guy, uh, a judge could be incompetent, judge could be totally out of his depth, a judge could allow bias to enter his mind. Uh, it's the prestige of these institutions that is part of how these juries are often manipulated. Um, I actually had wanted to go into this at some point later in our discussion, uh, and we can, but uh, what Borzoi is saying uh, made me think of that as well, that, uh, you know, you see this a lot with uh, the veneration in Law and Order television reruns and uh, American legal culture for 200 years now, the, the, um, the can-do-no-wrong prosecutor. The uh, the DA, the Attorney General, dun, dun. you know it, this, this. You know that guy basic. is so trusted. He was, I think, put in like Fidelity Investments or whatever ads because he was revered, like you're talking about. Um, mm-hmm. I, I can't remember exactly, but I'm pretty sure that guy who's got like the salt and pepper hair. Uh, yeah, he's like selling mutual funds now because you know people love him. <laughs> Yeah, people. Uh, yeah, and th- so I'm I'm, I'm uh, drifting away. I think from the original chain of uh, of discussion, which I believe was the libtard dilemma. But uh, I I thought it was interesting. I'm that, not an honest person, but I play one on TV. Yeah, yeah. The 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 prestige element. You can you can uh, you can understand how show trials can quickly become a facet of a culture, and I'll leave it at that. Well, that explains why show trials are necessary in the first place. Obviously, a system that was, you know, truly confident, it wouldn't need the show trial. They would just execute their enemies. Simple as, you know, dig hole in ground, shoot them all, throw them in hole. Solved. I mean, this, this that's the thing about the lib the libtard as a class, as a psychological class. They are interesting. I agree with Borza. I find them interesting. I find them more interesting than conservatards. They're... Because they they really they believe as they have to, but it's through a combination. The the underlying myths of the libtard come to being through a combination of raw material interests, as well as religious fervor. So, like, basically, they have to they have to cash in checks for you know six figure salaries so that they can make sure that every Negro is loved. What I also find interesting about their uh, about their psychology as well is, and this is something that actually, I, I think that's becoming less. This is becoming less and less of the case because I think people are starting to have a much uh, like their their friend enemy distinctions finally started to kick in, and they've stopped trying to parcel out because you you remember this used to be a thing like owning owning libtards is about trying to own them on what their supposed premise of their of their supposed beliefs 
were. And a lot a lot of people who just didn't get it puzzled over this or would engage in behavior that really got them nowhere because they're trying to reach the, the libtard in some kind of abstract or uh, ideological levels like no you gotta go you have to go for the psychology you have to go for what they find prestigious they don't have beliefs their beliefs are whatever the the system that they see as prestigious dictates to them and so that's what they go with like their beliefs will change from day to day and they won't think twice about it if you confront them about that how their beliefs change that will not affect them one bit. That is the essence of the crowd. The crowd is not something you can rationalize with. That's it. The crowd is not something you can reason with. The crowd is only something you can understand and try to either nudge in certain ways or if you want to be if you if you want to attack them, you can. I, I mean, I have it. I have one tactic that really goes to their sense of status and and prestige that really messes them up really badly. You know, well, I just ask them, what's the, what's the, the last truth? Well, or you Bond have, makes or, that point very clearly. Yeah. If you but, tell uh, nothing, they will never say. more than if you tell them the truth. Yeah. Or you attack their their self esteem. I've made a lot of hay with asking them what's the last nonfiction book you read, and it really because it, you you start to like. I guess that is a way of telling them the truth. You're telling them the truth about what about who they are. And you get that uncertainty and fear and doubt and anxiety that starts to creep back in when you're able to basically cut them to the core. That's why I find their psychology very interesting, because I kind of want to pick it apart. Well, when you ask them, when was the last nonfiction? Well, of all the lib owning, be no greater lib owning than the the triumph of the orange idea in 2016 was the, the height of lib owning, because it was detestable to them from the perspective of their social class and, you know, dearly held values. But the reality is it was a popular victory. And that, that right there, like they don't know how to deal with that because on the one hand, they're supposed to be champions of the democratic idea and that, that they, they, so they have to their will to people for they have to find new people which is themselves. So then their elitism comes out and that's what's happened over the past few years. They've, they've just doubled down on it. Well, when you ask them, you know, what was the last nonfiction book you read? Uh, mostly what from your trying to ask them is what was the last history book you've read? I mean, generally that's like one of the probably the most popular category of non of nonfiction would be a history book. And part of the, uh, the one of these elements of the crowd is this uh, very overt present-mindedness, let's say. You are fixated on the moving present. And uh, I think Roger Scruton talked about this at some point. He described it as, you know, people living in the present and they the past as like this window through which they occasionally look through only for a small light and then they return to the present uh and this is what really motivates a lot of of uh of liberals today is that they are just truly fixated on the present at any given moment 
And history only is meant to reflect the present. And the future is only meant to reflect the present and vice versa. All of time is just present time. It's just the moving present. And so when you're really wrapped up into this crowd, think about it if you're in a riot. You know, you're, you're, you're only really there. You're not thinking about anything historically. You're not thinking about the future. You're thinking about the crowbar and the window and the brick and the fire, right? And it's the same even if you're not in riot. Let's say you're an American lib. It's the same thing. You're only thinking about very basic fun, you know, uh, ideological elementations. You're, you're only thinking about little lofty goals that are never really truly accomplished or never really truly even defined. You're always in the present and it's totally wrapped in emotion. There's no forethought. There's no hindsight. There's nothing. Uh, it really is a mass psychosis event that goes on and on and on and on. And you have to understand these people are living in a never-ending psychosis event. And there's a hundred, a thousand, a million examples that you can talk about with any given subject. The most popular one of the day, these, you know, right now is COVID stuff, you know, the, the cult that these people have ingratiated themselves into. But this has been a facet of their existence for decades civil rights, even the rationalization of deindustrialization, which is a lib phenomena, uh, certainly I think a libtard phenomena uh, decades ago. And there was no element of history, no element of forethought. It was totally in the moment. It was totally emotional. It was totally psychotic. And it went on and on and on. And much like kind of like a riot, you know, it's sort of a, it's a touch and go or, you know, it's a might move to one thing, might do something else. You might pitch in here, move back here. These people do bounce around to different things. They are bouncing around. But make no mistake, they are fixated on the present. And they'll only think of anything out of the past very instinctively. And it's only to try and keep the present reality sort of uh, held together. It's a, it's a, it's a really, really uh, devilish way to live your life. Um, and it, you know, leaving out the degeneracy and the, the debauchery element, it's devilish in that you're sort of rotting your mind and you're slowly burning that, that candle and then all of a sudden you burn it all at once on every single issue and you don't think about anything. Uh, th this is how these people operate. And if you really try and pay attention to them, you'll see it. You'll see that they live entirely in the present. They do not think. Many of these people have PhDs, but they genuinely only acquire what they need to fixate on that present you know, quest for the PhD and then they move on. I have another question. Well, Sorry for well, having said just it, questions, it, but you, you've given ahead, me, let, let me just put these in here. Okay, Cause this is to what Hans said. You give me an opportunity to 
uh, quote my two of my favorite parts of the book. Uh, firstly, uh, we were just saying about the endless repetition of the present. So uh, the experiences undergone by one generation are useless as a rule for the generation that follows, which is the reason why historical facts cited with a view to demonstration serve no purpose. Their only utility is to prove to what an extent experiences need to be repeated from age to age to exert any influence or to be successful in merely shaking an erroneous opinion when it is uh, solidly implanted in the mind of the masses. And then uh, the other, this, uh, forgive me, a bit longer, this is two paragraphs, but this is my favorite uh, two paragraphs of the book. And just, I, I, these stuck with me. <clears throat> In this place, however, we have only to concern ourselves with the influence of time on the genesis of the opinions of crowds. Its action from this point of view is still immense. Dependent upon it are the great forces such as race, which cannot form themselves without it. It causes the birth, the growth, and the death of all beliefs. It is by the aid of time that they acquire their strength and also by its aid that they lose it. It is time in particular particular that prepares the opinions and beliefs of crowds or at least the soil on which they will germinate this is why certain ideas are realizable at one epoch and not at another it is time that accumulates that immense deritritis of beliefs and thoughts on which the ideas of a given period spring up they do not grow at hazard and by chance the roots of each of them strike down into a long past when they blossom, it is time that has prepared their blooming. And to arrive at a notion of their genesis, it is always back in the past that is necessary to search. They are the daughters of the past and the mothers of the future, but throughout the slaves of time. What was your, uh, your An idea on? whose time has come. <laughs> I believe that's what I, I believe in my forward to Wyndham Lewis's Hitler. I, I, believe, I believe I referred to Hitler as an idea whose time has come. There's something to that, something to that effect. Well, it has come, but I think you're asking for the second coming. Um, hey, the 20th century didn't belong to us. We have the future. Right. <laughs> um, so I don't have anything super poetic to say here. I, I'm just asking, honestly, because I've wondered this for a long time. Uh, and this is uh, kind of riffing off what Hans was mentioning. It, it kind of reminded me of this thought pattern I've had where he was mentioning things that, uh, you know, liberals kind of glommed onto, whether it's uh, COVID or environmentalism or shut the factories down kind of thing, which I all have my own issues with. But what I was wondering was, you know, they have similar complaints about the right. It, they're just on different topics. And so, you know, they'll bitch about abortion or uh, pedophilia from uh, Catholic priests or um, uh, war in Iraq. I mean, I remember that, you know. And, and so they're not all, like, uh, completely illegitimate. But what I'm wondering is we find ourselves in these movements, whether we're on the right or the left, uh, as just human beings. And what I'm asking is, is the tendency to find yourself in a crowd or sort of not think about what you're doing at the moment, something that's 
unique to liberals or is it just more of a personality thing that is common in humans and the only difference is really what your set of preferences are that's kind of how i view things but i i'm open to being given some nuance in this because I, I don't think liberals are insane necessarily. They just happen to want different things. And that's sort of irreconcilable when you're dealing with somebody who's also not insane, but just wants something else. It's like, you're both sane people, but one person likes hot dogs. The other guy likes hamburgers. I mean, I'm not going to say that guy's an idiot. He just doesn't want what I want. And my solution is, well, just don't live near me, but that apparently doesn't work anymore. So, uh, this is kind of what I'm asking. It's like, okay, you know, are, are these people defective or are they just different? Two, two, two responses to that, Adam. Uh, no, it's absolutely not unique to libtards and the, the American conception of, uh, I mean, even Le Bon talks about, about this, how the democracy idea is considered very different in America and Europe. I mean, this is in the late uh, 19th century, right? Uh, so that in of itself is a process of crowd formation that's going to that is a continuing obstacle uh, to the situation on the North American continent. Uh, but the other the other thing to say is that, yes, crowds are insane. They absolutely are insane. Uh, and that's what you have to work with. They, they, they are they are madness. Uh, you, you better be willing to, to roll with that. I appreciate they're very powerful for sure. Yeah, they are immensely powerful, and I don't think you should take away from uh, this work and or talk about it that crowns are necessarily uh, an absolute evil in of themselves or that they are uh, to be avoided at all costs. Uh, I believe Nick and Borzoi were mentioning Jung earlier in the show, and I was thinking about it. Uh, this entire time, uh, something that Jung talked about was the inevitability of certain people. Certain people are inevitable. Uh, that there's a there's a fate to everyone, and that uh, there's an inevitability to a group of people's fate. And it normally represents uh, over and over and over again. It recurs in different figures. Some of them real. Some of them mythological. Some of them maybe half myth, half real. But it recurs, and it's always there, and it's always inevitable that this is going to happen. And I think that the inevitability of the crowds element to create a great leader shouldn't be discarded. And for that great leader to take advantage, not take advantage, but to utilize uh, the passions of the crowd. People instinctively know what they want and uh, you shouldn't discount a group of people's instinct to know when something's not right. Uh, they might not know how to fix it. They might not know the truth of what they want, but they know generally what they want, and generally it ends up being good for them. And the crowd and what it produces and the inevitability of someone to come out of that crowd can be an immensely positive thing, can be an immensely powerful thing. And everyone, every group of people 
on earth has had a great chieftain, a great religious leader, a great powerful sorcerer. They probably thought at one point uh, it, it d- doesn't matter. This has always happened and you shouldn't discount it necessarily. And you should actually look to this for inspiration. And uh, even if you consider yourself educated and you're intelligent and you're rational, you do have to embrace the other side of yourself. I don't think LeBon is necessarily saying you shouldn't either, that you shouldn't be able to embrace that side of yourself a little and that you shouldn't be willing to let go every now and then and embrace something a little bit more uh, paleolithic, let's say. Yes, exactly. If you, absolutely, you do not take away from this, like, mm, cried bad. That's it, it. What he's presenting is an analysis of facts, facts yes. of history, facts of current life. You know, it, it, people who respond to his assessment of facts with their own dogmas and prejudices. Uh, so he's pretty amusing. I mean, there's many such cases. Again, you'll never be forgiven for being a clear writer. You know, that's it. He makes the point. Like, as soon as you shatter people's illusions, they will hate you for it. They will never forgive you for that. Uh, is, there, is there anything else you'd like to to hit on here? For your yeah, I, was, I, I guess I guess to wrap up here. I mean, the, and kind of continuing off of what Hans was saying, the key thing to take away from this, and why I think this is an immensely great book to read, is I appreciate any book that does not flatter the intelligence of the reader. And LeBone refuses to do that with the way he engages in analysis. You look at a book like The Crowd, A Study of the Popular Mind, and you think you, you, you're, you get a number of assumptions that come to mind, especially because of the way our culture has prioritized individualism and being this you're a you're a special unique individual i don't even want to use the word snowflake but we all thought of it that there's something that you're above the rabble and you should want to be above the rabble you 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 know you're better than that and lebone's like no no you're not unless you're unless you're somebody who truly has that that indescribable force of history behind you you're you're a, you're just a member of the crowd you might have you might be part of a smaller crowd. You might be part of a bigger crowd. You might be a crowd that has very particular racial characteristics. You might be part of a crowd that just just defies description, but you're still a part of a crowd. And there, you're not above that. You Some aspect of yourself is going to be sublimated into a crowd, and you're going to desire, and uh, frankly, you're going to desire to be part of that because we all want to be part of something. And it's a good book to read because you'll see that you, you'll recognize those aspects within yourself, but most importantly, you'll a- recognize those aspects within others, and you'll be you'll you'll be less confused about what's going on in the world if you have a, if you read this book with an open mind. It was an amazing read, frankly. I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. I want to thank you, Nick, for getting me to read this. Absolutely, I, I thought of you. Uh, you know, and people who. The people who are going to struggle with this are going to be, it, it is the reason we spent some time talking about the libtard is because that is the, the central myth of the libtard is what's at odds with this. I have no problem saying 
that I'm simply another installment in a long chain of blood. And I act the way I act and I, I hold to the myths that I hold because of my blood. As simple as that. I, I don't have any illusions about this. I mean, I don't have any problem with that. You know, and the libtard, like the criticisms that you find when you look at people who are currently, uh, you know, purport to be, uh, uh, what do you say? Uh, they they their school is you know mass psychology social psychology whatever crowd crowd psychology uh, there's one guy in particular I, I don't have his name on hand but he'll, he'll come up he's a I believe an Australian and what they'll their main criticism outside of they'll make the obvious points about oh these are like old fashioned you know these are 19th century ideas meanwhile like they themselves hold like 18th century <laughs> liberal <laughs> illusions but leaving that aside the uh critique that they put forward is going to be something along the lines of like oh well we don't believe that like the sub the, the individual uh dissipates in, in the crowd we believe that in fact the crowd is the actualization of that individual's will and they have they have to believe that because at the end of the day, like all of the different like li liberalism is taking many different forms. And in America, the entire spectrum of politics is still liberalism. And the underlying assumption of all liberals and in America, that includes, you know, the right wingers and the left wingers, the right wing liberals and left wing liberals. Uh, they all believe the same thing, which is that the individual they believe that his, the individual is the subject of history, the individual personality, and that that individual is removed from the bounds of blood and tradition and history, and that he or she or zit or whatever can just choose what they're they, they can choose to actualize themselves and through participation in the in democratic process or more importantly in the consumer process. Uh, in in consumption and buying, that they actualize themselves, and that, that their individuality is is attained through this process. I guess if I have any final thoughts on this, it's that this book needs to be read by by the people who this book needs to be read by people who get it. And I don't know how else to describe it on that fundamental level because yeah, it's a sort of paradoxical. Like, is a yeah. person that he describes as a member of the crowd going to get it, and who yeah. is outside of that group, and what percentage of the population yeah. is that? Would you estimate? That's it's, dude. That's the question. It's hard, and it's hard to to determine that because of how just. It, I can't speak for for Europe, but Americans like I look at this sometimes like I don't know what what to to do with all this. In fact, actually, a point I was going to make earlier and it kind of got lost in the shuffle. But I think any any man who's going to whip up a crowd in America to guide a crowd in America has to have a touch of that televangelist streak. And Alex Jones has it. Were he not Alex, jo were he not Alex Jones, he could have been a televangelist. Uh, Trump has a touch of that as well. He's not as he's he doesn't do the religious appeals quite as much as other uh, movers of American people are. But it's there. You can see it. He, he you can definitely see, you it, you can picture Trump being a televangelist. That's the key thing to my test here. Like of the people who 
have a way over the crowd, over the American crowd or of some of the American crowds, you can picture them as a televangelist. And to me, that is just something about America. You can look into You can study that, try to understand why that is. It's kind of been there since the beginning with the, the with the, the Great Awakening and the uh, the burned over district people like more, Joseph Smith came out of all that. I mean, Joseph Smith is kind of a in America like, is in a avatar of America, at least 19th century America. And so what makes this book so potent and so potential is that because he talks about the race component as well. And I think for somebody who wants to for somebody who wants to truly move and guide the American crowd, they're going to need to have they're going to be a racist. They're going to need to be a racist televangelist, basically. And I don't know what's going to be created out of that mess. Like, I don't know what kind of Aryan psychopaths are going to be unleashed upon the world if that were the case. But to me, that's the only way that's the only path forward right now. Yeah, and back back to the earlier theme of uh, whether or not you know you try to moralize about about the crowd, and we characterize it starting from the beginning as he does. It's essentially you're dealing with women and children, and that's not such a bad thing. I mean, it's the child who's the first one to say the emperor has no clothes. I mean, I don't know if I lose any points for for doing that one, but I mean, it's true, right? And it's like you, like masculine, big brained reasonable man like sits sits back like doesn't allow yourself to be uh, swayed by emotions and contemplates the arguments and reason and maybe you have a reddit account even uh and then you have like what you he would describe as feminine reaction where you know they do something they slight you unjustly and you burn the fucking pig station down and you kill everyone inside i mean i'm not saying do that i'm just saying those are two different kinds of reactions It's the, the that's the potentiality within the American people. I think I think you've talked about this before, uh, Nick. At least with me in, in private about you know what, what I'm optimistic. Is to be American- I, I am. Yeah. I am optimistic about the 21st century. People, I I don't know what people say because I don't really pay much attention to what they say about me. But I, I know we have we we've kind of had a bit here where we we tend to end on a pessimistic note. Uh, because usually we're talking about the 20th century and the 20th century was a fail. Like it did not work out. It was bad. Uh, people who were stuck in the 20th century are not going to make it. You know, we want the crowd of the future and the myths that are going to move that are going to be the new idea. I mean, the new idea is also the old idea. What's what's old is new again. Right. But regardless, the point is, is that the future has a lot of potentialities and barbarians i mean the american the the quan the quan crowd is is the quintessential crowd it's the quintessential barbarian it has it has nothing but its impulses and those impulses and that's why there's a lot of you know it's starting to get a little heated in this place because it's whoever can direct those impulses i mean they're they're, it's bottled lightning i don't know how it's going to shake out i mean i yeah, you're right, Borza. It's gonna the, the character of somebody who can wrangle the American people. Uh, it's hard to say, man. I mean, well, I guess we could end here with uh, with something from LeBone because I he he has a passage which it's hard not to think of of the Americans when you when you hear this. 
It is easy to note briefly these common phases of the evolution of civilizations, and I shall terminate this work with a summary of them. This rapid sketch will perhaps throw some gleams of light on the causes of the power at present wielded by crowds. If we examine in their main lines the genesis of the greatness and of the fall of the civilizations that preceded our own, what do we see? At the dawn of civilization, a swarm of men of various origin brought together by, ch by the chances of migrations, invasions, and conquests of different blood and of equally different languages and beliefs. The only common bond of union between these men is the half-recognized law of achieve. The psychological characteristics of crowds are present in an eminent degree in these confused agglomerations. They have the transient cohesion of crowds, their heroism, their weaknesses, their impulsiveness, and their violence. Nothing is stable in connection with them. They are barbarians. Wake up by a lock, 50 minutes of 5 days, 20 minutes.